Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening to us today. We are now on episode 301. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing well um, because we have a new co-host. Oh yes, that's true. Uh, We are excited to share that we have a cat. Yes. Paradox has joined Castle Scream scene. She's a five-year-old tuxedo cat. Who is currently investigating all of the podcast gear. So I think she'll be probably more on the producer's side (laughs) and like behind the scenes. Um, But if you hear little meows here or there, that's who that is. Yeah. She's just adding her opinion about the film. Which, you know, is a perspective that is not often heard cats yeah and their perspective on horror Mm. it's very important that we make sure that her voice is heard gotcha what do you think about that paradox well she's just cleaning herself (laughs) how are you i'm doing great sarah i'm really excited to watch today's movie we kind of had like a false start last week but then you were a little under the weather and so we decided to push the episode Yeah, two-day migraines. Yeah, it was bad. But hey, now we're here. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But the hit parade of 1960 keeps on coming. And today we are watching 13 Ghosts, directed by William Castle from 1960. So I shared a little bit about this at the end of last episode, but my only exposure to 13 ghosts is the remake right that um i i've seen a little bit of because i saw it way too young thanks older sisters uh and i just remember being fucking terrified oh hello paradox paradox is also fucking terrified i see (laughs) um yeah so that's my only exposure have you seen this before this 13 ghosts yeah yeah so this 13 ghosts I would not call terrifying. I would call sort of spoopy is more the vibe. That works since this is the first episode in October. So. Right. Yeah. So this is a William Castle movie. Okay. And by 1960, audiences knew what to expect of William Castle. He had kind of built up this brand for himself um, with sort of a showmanship to rival Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, with these, like, gimmick horror movies. And the idea of, like, William Castle's gimmick horror movies were kind of, like, entrenched by now in the public consciousness. Like, there was a William Castle fan club that was 250,000 members strong across America. Wow. That would, you know, then be mobilized to demand that local theaters book his latest picture. Damn. Uh, So, like, he's doing pretty well. You know, and even, like... Hitchcock's kind of biting off Castle a little bit with like the way that Hitchcock presented Psycho and like the trailers for Psycho have a very like William Castle vibe. By this point, Castle was coming up with the gimmicks first and the picture second. That makes sense. So he's on vacation in France with his wife and he spots an old house for sale Mm -hmm. on like the coast. 
like a grand old house on a cliff kind of thing. I hope you went by Monsieur Chateau when he was over there. Monsieur Chateau? Mr. House? Mr. Castle. Mr. Castle. I see. Got it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Um, so he spots this old house for sale and he yeah. gets an idea. He would buy the house and then have thousands of keys made, only one of which would fit the lock on the door. And the idea would be to give the keys out to attendees of his next picture with one lucky winner now owning a haunted house in France. Okay. So Castle set to work on writing the script with Rob White, his regular writing partner for his horror movies going all the way back to Macabre. And the story they developed was of a normal family inheriting a haunted house from an eccentric uncle wherein dwelt all these ghosts. Okay, a little bit of a Cat in the Canary origin here. Yeah. So while in pre-production, Castle began to experience severe headaches, and he went to see an ophthalmologist. And there, as, you know, lenses were tested, you know, number one, number two, number one, number two, until things were clear and comfortable, Castle came up with an entirely new gimmick for the picture. <laughs> okay. <laughs> The black and white film would be treated with a blue filter, while the animated ghosts would be added in post-production using a red filter. And basically, this is like the same idea that fuels the famous Jekyll and Hyde makeup transition mm. from 1931, but kind of just like writ large. So in the story, the family finds goggles through which you can see the ghosts, like Ghost Viewer goggles uh so when the characters wear the goggles the audience would look through a special ghost viewer set of like glasses they would be given um and by looking through the blue filter the ghosts would disappear and you couldn't see them um and that was for audience members who were too afraid to see the ghosts if you're too scared you can look through the blue filter and make the ghosts go away okay whereas the red filter would make the ghosts easier to see so you'd be seeing the ghosts like you didn't actually have to use the ghost viewer at all. Um, it was just the red filter would highlight the ghosts. The blue would make it go away or you could just watch the movie. So what this meant is that for the first time, the gimmick wouldn't be external uh, like an insurance policy or a flying skeleton <laughs> or buzzer chairs. Uh, it would actually be built into the chemical makeup of the film itself. Castle called this illusiono like presented in illusiono my goodness the film cinematographer would be joseph birak who had also shot it's a wonderful life buona devil the first 3d film donovan's brain and the vincent price version of the bat and he would go on to shoot bye bye birdie hush hush sweet charlotte flight of the phoenix the detective the towering inferno and airplane oh and its sequel Airplane 2. The sequel. Yes. For the role of the family's precocious, ghost-sensitive son, uh, Castle, got J Castle got Charles Herbert, who was one of the biggest child stars of the time. He had played Philippe in The Fly two years earlier. Okay. Um, and he got Charles Herbert to do this movie by promising the 12-year-old top billing. Oh, my goodness. 
So yeah, so Charles Herbert gets top billing in this movie. Um, he would only appear in one more feature film before hitting his teen years, which made him uninteresting to casting directors. <laughs> so this is like his last chance to get some money for his college fund. Yeah, that his uh, parents all spent on him. Uh, he worked on TV until he was 21. And then after that, uh, he had no money and fell into kind of like an empty wanderer life of drug addiction. Oh, no. Um, he got sober when he was 56. And thereafter, he worked with organizations to support child actors uh, until he passed away in 2015. Second build in the cast is Joe Morrow, who plays the teen daughter of the family, uh, though she was 21 when the movie was released. Morrow had gotten her start as a beauty pageant contest winner, getting a contract at 20th Century Fox at age 19. After one film at Fox, she switched to Columbia after a Fox exec made a pass at her. Boo. Her, <laughs> her best known film might be 1960's Three Worlds of Gulliver, which featured effects by Ray Harryhausen. She largely retired after the birth of her daughter in 1964. Martin Milner, who plays the family lawyer, meanwhile, was about to transition from a career as a young lover in movies to being a leading man on two top TV series, Route 66 from 1960 to 1964 and Adam 12 from 1968 to 1975. So he really likes titles with numbers. I guess. You know, it's a, like a good luck thing. <laughs> but the actual lead actor, the dad of the family is fifth build in the cast. It's poor Donald Woods. Have we seen him before? You say his name like we have. Oh, no, I just mean poor Donald Woods, as in, like, he's the biggest role in the cast, but he's fifth build. He was born Ralph Zink in Brandon, Manitoba in 1905. So he's Canadian. Yeah. Well, he he's being polite by letting everyone go ahead of him. Right. <laughs> Uh, he moved with his family to California at a young age, graduated from Berkeley, and began his film career in 1928. He primarily appeared in supporting roles in A pictures or lead roles in B pictures. Um, he even played Perry Mason once in the final film of Warner Brothers' six-film Perry Mason series of the 1930s. But probably the most recognizable performer in the cast to a modern audience is Margaret Hamilton. Do you know who Margaret Hamilton is? No. Okay. Born in 1902 in Cleveland, Ohio, Hamilton was a school teacher before making her film debut in 1933. She worked several years as a character actress before playing the part she is best known for, the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz. Okay, yes, no. Yeah, now I know who you're talking about. Despite onset accidents that required hospitalization for burns, uh, Hamilton relished playing the role of the Wicked Witch. Her only regret was that it made children afraid of her when she, like, really dearly loved children. Yes, yep. It wasn't until 1956 that CBS began running Wizard of Oz on TV uh, every year. And so um, it's only after that point that Hamilton really began appearing in roles that referenced the witch, uh, like 13 Ghosts does, or, for instance, her role as Morticia's mother on The Addams Family, um, or uh, reprising the role on, like, variety shows or programs like Sesame Street in, like, the late 60s and early 70s. Yeah, she was on uh, Mr. Rogers. 
Yes, uh, where they did like a set of episodes to explain that like she was just an actress and it's all make believe and yeah. you don't have to be afraid of her. Um, she retired in 1982 and passed away in 1985. So 13 Ghosts was released in July of 1960. And by this point, critics were beginning to express some weariness over Castle's gimmicks, uh, some, some Castle gimmick fatigue, um, wishing that he would just like make a straight horror picture without them. But audience response was highly enthusiastic, and 13 Ghosts became another box office hit for Castle, making $1.5 million. Damn. So now he can really afford that mansion in France. Right. As you have mentioned, it was remade in 2001, but the remake has very little to do with the original. And Does it have 13 Ghosts? I would hope so. Okay. 13 Ghosts is available on Blu-ray from Indicator and to rent on Apple TV. Fantastic. Well, folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss 13 Ghosts from 1960, directed by William Castle. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everyone. We just finished watching 13 Ghosts by William Castle from 1960. Sarah, what did you think? I really wanted to like this movie. Mm. I had a bit of a hard time <laughs> with it. Yeah. People need to act better. <laughs> Anyways, what did you think? Um, So 13 Ghosts is what I would... <laughs> hey, Paradox. 13 Ghosts is what I would call a kids horror movie. I mm-hmm. I think it's probably a blast if you are under 10. It's fun. It's not actually scary. Again, unless like you're under 10. I think like maybe like a kid could get freaked out by this the way that I remember getting freaked out by like this picture book that had like holographic ghosts in the illustrations. <laughs> that um, explains so much. But uh you know, and some of the ghost designs are more ghoulish than others. Um, yeah, I think that they did push Castle's envelope for the ghouls. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're totally on the money that it's a kid's horror movie. Because I kept thinking about, um, I want to say it's Invaders from Mars. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, with that in mind, um, kids' horror movies are still horror movies. Like, kids need to have horror movies of their own, you know yeah. what I mean? And that's valid. But I think, you know, what that means is for adults, I think 13 Ghosts is a fun, spoopy movie. Like, I think it's it's probably a blast for, like, Halloween parties and things like that. Especially because you don't really need to be paying attention to it. For sure. Right? It can be going on in the background. Yeah, you just don't kind of, like, looking like, neat. Yeah, you don't um, need to be following the intricate plot lines. Right, uh, which are all very, like, I think, rote. Like, very easy to telegraph. Yeah, I would say my suspicion about the plot line of this movie is that, like, they started with the gimmick, so then they had to come up with the 13 ghosts, and then they came up with, like, the scenes for the various ghosts, and then they, like, 
came up with a plot to wrap around all of that. That's just kind of my suspicion. So yeah, the plot's a little cookie cutter, but let's talk about it. Sure. So we are following Cyrus Zorba and his family. Um, he works at the LA County Museum as, I think, a paleontologist. Yeah. His family has $2 in the bank, which uh, in today's money is $20. Mm-hmm. So they are in bad straits, especially because um, they missed a payment or they're behind on payments or something. So the moving company has taken all of their furniture. Mm-hmm. They, they got nothing. They can't afford rent. Uh, they're in a bad spot. Um, in the Zorba family, we have his wife, Hilda, his older daughter, Medea, who's like 16. 16, 17. And then his young son, Buck, uh, who's like 8. Ten. 10. And it's his birthday. Uh, and for his birthday, he wishes for a house of furniture. A house with furniture. A house with furniture. I feel like house of furniture implies like (laughs) something slightly different. And let me just take a quick aside. That's really fucking sad. Yeah. That's so fucking sad. And the movie does not play it for sad. It's like, oh, if only Cyrus wasn't such a like forget it, forget a guy. What's that word? Uh, Absent-minded. Yes. If only wasn't (laughs) absent-minded. I'm dealing with cat allergies, okay? (laughs) my nose is wild right now. Um, the, the, the tone of this movie throughout is very much like a light touch. We don't get too bogged down in like the heavy details that are underlining like the premise of this movie. And it's, I, I just needed to like point that out. Sure. Um, it's like how Charlie from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory lives in like abject poverty, but like. It's supposed to be quirky. Right. Almost immediately after making that wish from his birthday cake, they get a telegram. Turns out Cyrus's old rich uncle, uh, Dr. Zorba, has died, and they get to inherit his house and everything that's inside it. Including furniture. Including furniture. As part of this inheritance, they meet Dr. Zorba's lawyer, Ben Rush, who spells his name as Benjamin rather than Min. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 the Benjamin. Yeah. If that was the superhero team. Benjamin. Yeah. It's raining Benjamin. So anyways. <laughs> and then they also meet uh, Dr. Zorba's housekeeper, Elaine. Elaine is Margaret Hamilton from Wizard of Oz. Nearly immediately, weird spooky shit happens. First, Buck finds a, uh, they call it a Ouija board uh mm-hmm. it's pronounced ouija i mean the official pronunciation if, if you really think about it it should probably be pronounced weia but no one says that well okay another aside they <laughs> cyrus um actually is his son to be like the name ouija comes from the french wo- uh, word for yes we and the german word for yes ya right which is a misnomer um you can look up the history of it. Uh, it's actually just a bunch of nonsense. A guy misreading someone's name and yada yada. Yeah. This uh, isn't the time for the history of the Ouija board. Yeah. That would have been in the context setting had we known that this would be the first appearance of a Ouija board in the podcast. Sure. 
it might have been in the uninvited. I don't remember. In any case. Yeah, in any case. In any case. um, This episode is also the first appearance of Creepy Young Child with Ouija Board, which I'll get into. Um, So they play around with the Ouija Board, um, and the Ouija Board's like, yep, there's ghosts here. There's 13, in fact, and we're going to kill you. It's actually a fairly good scene. Later, Buck says that he has seen the ghosts. He knows each of them by name, uh, partly thanks to Elaine, who knows some of the ghosts. And he's like, oh, yes, this one in the kitchen is the Italian ghost uh, who, like, murdered his wife with a cleaver. And over here is, like, a lion tamer ghost who doesn't have a head and kind of just, like, nonchalantly is telling the family about these ghosts. Yeah, Buck's pretty, like, into the ghosts. He's, like, into ghost stories and stuff. And he's got, like, a 10-year-old boy's kind of, like, gee whiz kind of attitude. And he's gee just, whiz, Batman. And he's just kind of cool with everything. Um, the, the idea here is that like Dr. Zorba was like a researcher of ghosts and like, I guess like collected them yeah, like Pokemon, like from around the world yeah. and brought them all to his house. Um, where like him and Elaine did seances and stuff to talk to them. Um, so very briefly, the 13 ghosts are the screaming woman, clutching hands, floating head, flaming skeleton, Emilio, the Italian chef. Whose uh, mustache is ghostly. Yes. Like it's white in the... It's comical. So there's the cook, his wife, and her lover. No sign of the thief. (laughs) Um, There's the executioner and head, the hanging woman, the lion, and the tamer. And ghost number 12 is Dr. Zorba himself, being the most recently dead person in the house. And the number 13 ghost is a mystery. And I basically just want to say that like the screaming woman, the flaming skeleton, and I think clutching hands like all get like their own little sequence. Uh, The hanging woman and the executioner get featured. Uh, Emilio, his wife and her lover get featured. The Lion and the Tamer have a sequence. Dr. Zorba, of course, is very important, as you might expect. I don't remember seeing the floating head really anywhere outside of the beginning and ending of the movie. And it doesn't even look human. It looks like a weird, like, goblin orc man head. No, I remember seeing the head. Okay. Some of these ghosts get more screen time than others, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Like, some of these ghosts get more of a backstory and and such. Now, along with this Ouija board and this, like, secret compartment... Cyrus does find like a book full of notes written in Latin, which he takes to his boss who knows Latin inside and out. And it's basically a diary of sorts. And that's how we learn about Dr. Zorba's experiments, that Elaine is actually a medium. uh, And that also like the week or so before he died, uh, Dr. Zorba took out all his money into cash and hid it into his house. Now, as I said, these like, ghostly appearances and apparitions they start immediately including cyrus getting like branded with the number 13 on his hand yeah that's the first night and they stay yeah like and this is sort of a running thing through the movie but like you know the ouija board like doesn't just do normal ouija board stuff like the planchette like comes off and starts floating through the air a painting falls off the wall uh 
Cyrus like straight up like sees a bunch of ghosts that like all light on fire and scream and then he gets like attacked by like a flaming pinwheel and then like the next scene is him being like well you know maybe I just imagined it or something and it's like this is a lot my dude it's a lot and that's the first night the second night is Medea's going to bed and we see like some kind of creepy figure covered in cobwebs move through the house and go into her room and spook her. Like kind of a zombie looking thing, like an undead person. Yeah. Now, Ben, the lawyer, has um, been coming. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because you had to add the lawyer so that it was clear you weren't talking about me. <laughs> Ben, the lawyer, has been coming around the house and he's like trying to make friends. He's trying to date Medea basically as well. And it's kind of like a, why are you still around here, my dude? Buck finds a couple hundred bucks on the floor. Uh, For context, $200 in 1960s, $2,000 today. And Ben sees that Buck finds this and he's like, no, this should be our little secret, which immediately, you know, the red flags are going in my head. Yeah. I mean, I was already red flagging, but like... Yeah, because hmm. he's like a practicing lawyer who's dating a 17-year-old, maybe. That too. That too. But yeah, it's very much like, hey, 10-year-old, you can have $200 if you just keep the fact that you found this money a secret. Can you imagine what you would do with two two grand when you were 10? Yes, <laughs> I can. <laughs> Pokemon cards, Ben. (laughs) So while Buck is, you know, trying to search through the house because this is a secret, uh, there is a seance going on with Elaine as the medium and the rest of the family. And they do get to engage with Dr. Zorba's spirit, who's like, "Um, one of you in the house is going to die tonight. Keep in mind that everyone who we have met so far in the movie is in the house. But it's planned to be like their last night there. Uh, Cyrus does learn that there's money hidden in the house, but he's like, no, the danger to the family, we're going to leave first thing in the morning. Next, we see the figure that was like kind of undead and covered in cobwebs moving through the house, except this time the camera tilts up and we see that it is Ben the lawyer who picks up an unconscious buck because he's asleep, like dead asleep. Um, moves him into what used to be Dr. Zorba's room and then hits a button that will basically crush Buck with the canopy of the bed very slowly. Yeah, which is the same way that Dr. Zorba died. Yes, asphyxiation. While the canopy is slowly coming down, Dr. Zorba's spirit appears to Ben and is like spooking him and scaring him. Ben is like frozen in fear and is like slowly backing up and simultaneously Buck awakes and gets out of the bed just as Ben kind of gets backed up into the bed and then he gets suffocated. The and, next morning... And the kid watches all of this. And the kid watches all of this and then it's the next morning and like Hilda's counting like the thousands of dollars they have and they're like, oh, all's well that ends well. Basically. Basically. The house is still haunted. We see that Ben's ghost is, is now added to is the, the collection. Is the 13th ghost. Um, but, you know, the, the ghosts are kind of quelled and quieted. Uh, and they're going to keep living in this big, awesome house full of antique furniture. And that's that's the movie. So it's a pretty, like, standard, like, 
I'm going to scare you out of this house yeah. in order to like steal your inheritance out from under you kind of story. Especially with like the Scooby-Doo element of like, I'm trying to scare you away so mm-hmm. I can search for the money. Yeah. That felt very Scooby-Doo. I will say that I do appreciate that while Ben does have this get up to look like the corpse of Dr. Zorba to scare them out. And he's trying to like really early on, like set up, like this is a house full of ghosts. You don't want to stay here. This is scary. And like doing all he can, the ghosts are real in the house. Like the ghosts we see as red animated figures using our ghost viewers um, are real, um, which I think is like a nice, compromise between Mm -hmm. the way this plot usually goes whereas like i think especially in a movie that's directed at kids straight up being like the ghosts aren't real would actually be like really lame yeah the movie doesn't try to bait and switch right anytime that you see the ghosts we have the blue filter not with these undead feet though yeah, they're like a physically real thing, right? Yeah. And that's your definite first clue that like it's not a real ghost. Yeah, and it doesn't try to, it as in the movie, doesn't try to lampshade that it actually was a ghost or something like that. Like uh-huh. if you know what's going on in the movie and you're also familiar with these tropes, like it's pretty easy to tell that Ben is the bad guy here yeah. from very early on. I mean, again, if you're like an eight-year-old or something, you might get surprised. But yeah, for like yeah, all an of this adult, is to like a savvy adult. This. Yeah. yeah. I will say the special effects are neat. Mm-hmm. Um, the like red and the blue filters work really nicely. I think the way that they capture the ghosts and integrated them in the blue filter looks really cool. It's just really the people interacting with the ghosts that it, it falters yeah like obviously they wanted this light-hearted approach so that it wasn't like i think too distressing for kids maybe so it keeps things nice and spoopy but it does feel really weird that no one is like really traumatized by the things that they've seen like even just one of those like off-the-cuff ghosts you listed mm-hmm. of a skeleton burning up yeah That's fucked up. Yeah. That's one of the more like provocative images that we see. The hanging woman is something else. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But even just like the way that the Italian chef is sort of played comically for the kid. Right. Like it's like he describes how the chef with the ghostly mustache hacked his wife and her lover to pieces. Yeah. And the cleaver also goes flying into the wall. Yeah. But it's all like very like nonchalant the way that some of the characters react to it. It bothered me. It's like, is this serious or is this not? And if it's not, why are you trying to have your cake and eat it too? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why like you have to see this from the point of view of like a horror movie for kids. Yeah. Because that's where the tone starts to make sense. That's why they're still legitimately trying to scare you, but they're not trying to disturb you. Right. Yeah. So it's very much like a carnival haunted house kind of vibe to things. It also really bothered me that things ramp up really quickly. Yes. Uh, but they, they don't leave. They don't call upon the idea of like, well, where are we going to go? We have literally no money. None of that is really called upon as proof for why we need to stay. It is like the implied reason, certainly, that like 
the reason we're staying is we're so desperate. But like the family like starts being like, we should get out of here pretty early. And it's like Cyrus who's like, no, 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 we're fine. Which is weird because he has like one of the most harrowing ghost encounters. Um, and yeah, the, the scenes where characters get harassed by ghosts are like almost weirdly played like silent cinema. Yeah, I thought that was neat. Um, especially because Castle would be doing this after uh, Fall of the House of Usher. Yeah. So I figured it was a bit of that kind of experiment. The thing is, is that um, for the scenes where we have the blue filter and the red ghosts, um, what happens is like the characters in the story put on a ghost viewer to see the ghosts. And so by having the characters getting harassed by the ghosts, not screaming in the scenes, like they're kind of like just sort of reacting with shocked faces, um, which is like a legit acting choice. But on the characters, especially on Buck, cause he's just a kid, the fucking ghost goggles take up so much of the face that like, there's like a very long protracted sequence of like Buck getting threatened by this ghost lion where the, tension and the suspense is supposed to be out of the fact that like buck can't get past the lion to escape but the best that like charles herbert can kind of do is like stand there with his mouth agape and i get that it's trying to be like oh he's scared but because we can't really read his eyes because of the goggles it just kind of looks like he's standing there sort of mildly like bored watching what's going on finding it amusing yeah and so like the ghosts are really cool but the scenes with them have almost like no tension or suspense mm-hmm. because hardly anyone reacts to anything. Castle also like holds on those scenes for like way too long. He's not editing them in a way that like generates suspense or tension, which like we know that he's capable of doing from his other movies. Yeah. So it feels like they're almost like so proud of like the gimmick and like how well this turned out, this like idea, this effect of like the overlay of the ghosts that they want to like stay on those shots as long as they can so that the audience has enough time to like flip between their filters and stuff on their, their glasses, but it ends up like ruining the pacing. Yeah. I I do like the idea that those, um, the ghost finder viewfinder kind Mm. of glasses in the movie as well, Mm -hmm. but there's no motivation for why the characters put them on. That's very true. Like, there's no reason for Cyrus to be carrying them around. Yeah. Like he, he, he just is absentmindedly holding on to them. And then he's like, Oh, I think I see something. Let me take off my regular glasses and put on these viewfinder glasses that I have not le- yet learned. Allow me to see ghosts. Cause that comes in exposition in the next scene when they're reading the diary. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like people just, put these things on and same with buck there's no reason why he would like put them on when he thinks he sees a ghost like there's no motivation yeah the lighthearted approach also means that like ben's death weirdly has no consequences like yeah. it's it's a very strange thing it's very strange because like the the sequence of events in the movie is like literally like buck watches ben get crushed to death by this mechanical bed basically after being put there by like a vengeful ghost and he screams and then there's a shot of the parents and Medea coming running into the next room and we don't actually get a scene of them entering into the room to comfort Buck we just see them run down the hall and into the room and then we fade to black and then we fade up and it's the next morning 
and they're counting their money around the table and Cyrus is like, yeah, so, you know, Ben was the one who killed Dr. Zorba to begin with, and he wanted all the money that was hidden in the house, but he didn't know where it was, so he got us to, like, take possession of the house so that he could kind of have enough time to, like, screw around and find the money, but he needed to try to convince us to leave, so he was trying to scare us out of the house, and he almost killed, you know, blah, 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 and giving, like, all the exposition, and it's like, well, you know, cool, we're rich now, or whatever, and, like, I... So even ignoring the fact that like Buck should probably be pretty traumatized by watching like a ghost kill a man, even ignoring that. And, and you know, I get it. It's a kid's movie. But how did that go down with the police? Yeah. Like if I'm the police and I arrive and there's this family in the house and a dead man who is their lawyer uh, who like advised them not to take possession of this house and now is dead and the family happened to find like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars just like in the house somewhere it was hidden and this like rich lawyer is dead or whatever this presumably more wealthy than the family that can't afford furniture lawyer anyways um and the family's like yeah so he was trying to scare us out of the house with like this ghost stuff but then like he tried to kill our son but then he got killed by his own like weird mechanical bed thing and then we found this money in a cat like in a hole in the wall like as the police i'd be like cool you're all under arrest for questioning including the weird housekeeper who looks like the witch from wizard of oz or at least miss gulch from wizard of oz uh so like let's get you all downtown for questioning in the suspicious as fuck murder of this lawyer all of that money would be kept as evidence yeah and tied up for years years yeah absolutely yeah it <laughs> that money's again, buying this... some new horses for the police force let me tell you that <laughs> this is a kids movie yes as we've been saying yes. and it, so it all kind of makes sense yeah yeah it all comes out in the wash it just i feel like even not dealing with the logistics of ben's death it's really weird from even a kid's child psychology point of view that we don't get a scene of like the parent's comforting buck after the horrible experience before we move on to like the breakfast scene which feels like it should come after a commercial break it really does i don't have anything else to say Yeah, that's about all i have to say about this one so 13 ghosts is a lot of fun Mm -hmm. you shouldn't expect to be like scared by it um if you have young kids maybe like try it out on them especially if like you have young kids who have the patience for black and white movies which i know isn't all kids but like i did when i was that age so sure. you know yeah i think aim for kids who are buck's age yeah which like is like eight around to 10. 10 yeah uh because I, I think that they would get you know something out of this movie uh so let's move on to ranking okay sarah um for my range it's pretty big it's almost 20 movies oh i have a spot so you go first okay so i kind of was like all right where are our other horror movies for kids so you mentioned invaders from mars uh that is at number 166 there is also curse of the cat people which is down at 178 now for anyone who hasn't heard our curse of the cat people episode but is familiar with that movie curse of the cat people is a really good movie it is only this low on the list because it is really not much of a horror movie even a horror movie for kids um that's why it's as low it is as it is it is a very good movie though so when you see that it's below like the alligator people and you're like what's up that's why the alligator um, people's are so dope as hell so <laughs> <laughs> so i was looking at those movies and i was like all right 
so we're in here somewhere. Looking up from Invaders from Mars, I decided that I wouldn't go any higher than 4D man at 158 because I felt like ultimately that's better at being a horror movie for adults, which means that it's going to be scarier than a horror movie for kids. But, you know, I could see an argument for putting this movie above stuff like Zombies of Mora Tau or The Mummy's Tomb just because, like, I think for, like, 13 Ghosts knows what it is. Yeah. And, like, for what it is, it's doing a really good job. I think, like, it's a really fun movie, I think. Looking below Invaders from Mars uh, and down to, like, Curse of the Cat People at 178, I was like, okay, well... Right below that is the 1956 version of Yahtzee Kaiden, which is like not our favorite version of Yahtzee Kaiden, um, but probably could be argued is still scarier than 13 Ghosts, just again due to that kids' movie versus movie for adults kind of thing. But right below Yahtzee Kaiden is The Lady and the Monster from 1944, which is just like a really kind of boring, lame movie. Um, not particularly all that good. So that ended up being my range, 159 to 180. Okay. So I appreciate where you were coming from with finding the signposts for other kids' horror movies on the list. Um, I did that with Invaders from Mars, but then I also wanted to have an idea of what were the rankings of Castle's other movies. Mm. And House on Haunted Hill Mm -hmm. is ranked at number 29. Okay. That's his highest movie. Macabre is right below that. And then his lowest ranked movie is The Tingler at number 84. Mm -hmm. In both cases, I feel like 13 Ghosts is not as good as those. Yeah, Um, I would agree. As much as The Tingler didn't quite work for me, it's definitely better than this movie. Like I said, I think the thing that really holds this one back is the way that focusing on the gimmick ghosts means that the scare scenes don't actually have the impact of like even the gimmicky scare stuff in the tingler like the black and white color like thing with the blood in the tingler yeah but also like the turning off of the lights and Mm -hmm. vincent price coming in like yeah that movie is made better by its gimmick it's not just the gimmick yes which brings me to 4d man Mm -hmm. also has a gimmick with it and i felt like 4d man holds its own even with the gimmick yes it's not just let me show you this gimmick yeah because it's got like an effective character drama at the heart of it with like the love triangle and the way that this guy like his whole psyche kind of cracks and like there's a bunch of like really interesting parallelism between him and the other guy in the love triangle that we go into in that episode. Yeah, absolutely. That's episode 279 if anyone wants to go back and listen. Right below that is The Man Who Could Cheat Death uh, from episode uh, 285. That one is unfortunately, um, you found it boring And it also kind of stuck too much to its gimmick Mm. um, of the color and of uh, showing ladies tits. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We found that movie to be honestly very tame. Yeah. It's very old fashioned. Old fashioned and slow paced Mm -hmm. uh, and not in a uh, good way. Right. Not in like an atmospheric way. Yeah. So honestly, my spot was right between these two because... 13 Ghosts, I like how they use the gimmick. I like how, you know, the characters have their own 3D glasses or whatever. I think how they pulled off the gimmick 
is neat yeah. and cool. And I, I do like Castle coming back in at the end to be like, you know, if you're scared at night, hold up your glasses. Maybe you'll see a ghost. Like, I like that. Um, but ultimately, it can't really surpass itself because it like the gimmick is holding itself back. Well, yeah, because like if, dear listener, you still aren't quite sure like what the vibe of this movie is, it the vibe of this movie is like supernatural Scooby-Doo Disney Channel original movie. Yeah. Like that's... I, I'm like, don't talk about Halloween Town that way, but yeah, I think like, you're right. Yeah, like that's the vibe. Like this feels like something that would have been on Wonderful World of Disney on ABC back in the day. So yeah, I mean, this is the top of my range. So yeah, I'm totally in agreement here. So entering the list at the new number 159 is 13 Ghosts, directed by William Castle from 1960. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to all the other episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, please drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr or reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, soon-to-be YouTube Podcasts, soundcloud and spotify you can subscribe to the show using our rss feed please share the show review the show give the show a five star rating uh tell a friend about the show uh talk about it on social media or head on over to our patreon at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month patrons at the five and ten dollar level get access to regular bonus content and we are in october which means it is the season for treats of course tricks and treats from your dedicated hosts here at castle scream scene as we offer every year some extra bonus content this year look forward to a special episode where yours truly will be running a game of the horror RPG Dread for Sarah uh, here on the show. And if you want to hear that and all of the past year's Halloween bonus goodies, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. So Dread has nothing to do with the judge. No, not Judge Dread at all. No, just okay. like the emotion of Dread. Okay. Yeah. Love it. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, the hit parade of 1960 continues. It's banger after banger. It's La Mascara del Demonio, or as it's better known by its English title, Black Sunday from Mario Bava. Oh no, this movie's huge. Big deal movie. Big deal movie. So don't miss it. Join us next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.